Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Driving Force Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst turned endurance athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest, Karen Smyers, is a triathlon legend. With a pro career that lasted from 1985 to 2011, Karen has achieved many of the highest accolades the sport has to offer. Some of these achievements include being a three-time winner of the ITU World Championships, a Pan American Games gold medalist, and a dramatic come-from-behind victory at the 1995 Ironman World Championships. In order to have as long of a pro career as she did, she also had to battle through a freak storm window accident, being struck by an 18-wheeler, and thyroid cancer. In my interview with Karen, we discuss how she got into triathlon and endurance sports, her training routine and thoughts around nutrition, including an interesting pre-race beer taper, and of course, some of her major achievements and how she persevered through so much hardship. And so, without further ado, my interview with Karen Spires. So how was, how was Puerto Rico last week? Oh, it was great. Yeah. Um, it was kind of a last minute trip that I uh, found out a couple of friends of mine, um, moms that have sons the same age as my son, were going. Uh, one of the moms grew up in Puerto Rico, so she goes there quite often. And so they said, you should come too. So um, we just did four days over their winter vacation. Um, yeah. So we stayed right on the beach and I got in some body surfing, which is always good for my soul. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little bit of playing in the ocean does wonders for me. Yeah. Yeah. I love, uh, love body surfing too. Was it the first time you've been to Puerto Rico? Um, I had been there before, but mostly like layovers on my way to St. Croix, I think. Right. Um, I I might have done a race there once. I haven't done the 70.3 that's there. Um, but I might've done another Olympic distance back in my day. It's hard to remember everything now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, much better training weather over there though, I would imagine. It was very nice. Yeah. It was so nice to just be able to run in shorts in a tank and, uh, swim outdoors. Yeah. Yeah. Where, sure. where are you from? Um, so I live in Hampton, New Hampshire. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so we're, Relatively you close. right on the beach too then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, exactly. Um well cool. I guess when so when did this whole endurance training journey uh start for you? Uh so I was a swimmer and I picked up running in college. Um had been in sports, you know, pretty much my entire life, although they varied like in high school I was on the gymnastics team, played tennis and um and also swam year round pretty much so swimming was always my main sport i did that in college and um in the spring when swimming was over wasn't good enough to join the tennis team at college so uh found out i could just walk onto track team so i started doing a little bit of running around the half mile and the mile and um it gave me my introduction to running and i discovered i had definitely some potential and so when i got out of college was definitely looking for a way to continue some sort of sport. My college roommate um, discovered triathlon. Uh, She was actually a runner. So um, she kind of is the one that got me onto the track team to begin with. So uh, she started doing triathlon. I kind of watched her do her first race and she did really well and actually won some prize money. And uh, so I'm like, this is cool. I'm doing it too. So we started training together and 
we had moved to the Boston area and uh, became kind of our whole social uh, network as well. You know, we joined a track club, the Irish American Track Club was half running, half drinking (laughs) and um, just, yeah, kind of uh, started racing here and here and there, mostly as a hobby. Uh, But at the end of the first summer that I raced in 1984, there was a race, the Bud Light Triathlon. It was the same one that my roommate had won money at the year before. I raced and I did well and I thought I had gotten second place, but when they called up the winners for the prize money, they called up three different people. And so I went up afterwards. I'm like, um, I think I, you know, beat that girl that you gave second place to, you know, why didn't I get it? And he's like, oh, well, you didn't enter the pro category. And I was like, oh, well, how do you do that? And he said, uh, next time on the application, check the pro box. <laughs> so <laughs> easy, I yeah. said, okay, that's what I'll do. And that's how I became a professional. <laughs> so it was pretty, uh, pretty low key back then. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so I was still working full time for the first five years that I kind of started racing professionally. Um, you know, at the time it didn't even occur to me to make a career out of it. Um, but as the years went by and, you know, I kind of was actually maintaining my amateur status. This is back before they allowed Olympians and stuff to um, take prize money. So I didn't really know why, but I just was keeping it in a little trust fund, which is what people did back then. And so it was kind of nice because I was accumulating a little nest egg um, that allowed me to actually have a cushion once I did finally decide to, well, my, my what happened is my company went on uh, halftime for a summer And I was able to spend a lot more time biking when that happened. And that was my weakness. So my biking improved quite a bit. And it kind of brought me up from being in the fifth to 10th place at the bigger races to being able to compete with the top people. And um, then the company actually went bankrupt. And so instead of looking for another job, I just decided to go full time. That was 1989. So pretty much have been full-time. Um, and I kept my pro license all the way up till 2011. So that's a pretty lengthy, uh, pro career. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so 1984 to, um, to 2011. Wow. <laughs> that is a, lo- a long pro career. You can um, tell I, uh, I fought tooth and nail to, <laughs> to hang on to it. Oh, there yeah. Definitely times in the last few years where I'm like, you're going to have to pry this out of my decrepit <laughs> hands. I'm staying pro. <laughs> Uh, right um so it sounded like um you didn't like as far as like the triathlon goes you didn't first go into like i guess the endurance aspect of it um but more so kind of the the sprints right and olympics yeah i really liked the olympic distance and um to be honest i kind of looked at iron man like a freak show in the beginning (laughs) um i was interested in it but i I just thought, oh, yeah, I would never do something like that. Although, ironically, I had I did run a marathon um, in the first few years that I was in Boston. A few of my friends decided they wanted to try and qualify for the Olympic trials. And um, some of them were on the running club with me. And I was like, oh, that's a cool idea. What's the time? And they're like, a 250. And I'm like, all right, I'm trying it with you. And so I ran my first marathon in 87. Um and qualified for the Olympic trials. And so I ran in the Olympic trials in 1988. And, um, and then I didn't do another straight marathon until 
I don't know, four or five years ago. <laughs> From then on, it was always only after an Ironman. <laughs> so, yeah. So How, I, uh, you know, I definitely, I knew that I was capable of endurance, but um, I don't think I did my first hundred mile bike ride until I had committed to doing my first Ironman. So okay. I can definitely remember when I, doing like a three hour bike ride that I thought, I was like gone all day long. I'm like, that was crazy. Can you believe how long we biked? <laughs> so, yeah. My husband actually is the one that kind of got hooked up with um, the idea of going to Hawaii. Uh, there was a qualifier that came to the Boston area called the Bay State Triathlon. And Dave McGilvery was the race director. And he also um, was my manager. Um, I, although I don't think he quite was managing me at that time, but anyway, he had gotten some Ironman slots put up at this race, even though it was only, uh, um, took about three hours. So it was in between Olympic and half Ironman. And, um, a bunch of the people that I trained with decided they were going to try and get these spot spots, including my sister, Donna, actually. And, um, I was a pro, so there weren't any pro slots there were only amateur spots and but my I told my husband I'm like all right you get a spot I'll do it too and not really ever thinking he would get one and he <laughs> did and my sister qualified and a couple of other of our friends so all of a sudden I was like yikes I've got to do Hawaii too I'm not going to go and watch so I talked actually Dave was my manager because I talked to him about how do I get a, a pro slot for the Iron Man and Mike Pig was looking for one too and at the time it was kind of a weird qualifying system where um, Dave Yeats, I think it was, just said, well, what races are you going to? And Mike and I were both going to do the Chicago triathlon. And he's like, all right, I'll put up a couple slots there, win the race so you and Mike both get them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So actually, I think I didn't win. I think McKeeley Jones beat me, but McKeeley had no interest in Hawaii at that time, so it passed down to me. (laughs) Got it. Got it. It sounds like a lot of... um the races that you entered um, and a lot of the training that you started early on was a lot less almost due to peer pressure. (laughs) You know, it was a lot of, um, you know, the social part of it was a big part of it, you know? And uh, yeah, sometimes I look back, I'm like, man, I just sort of fell into some of this stuff, you know, I think for sure I had decided at one point I went to watch Hawaii. It was after the, I think, uh, when the Iron Man, um, I'm sorry, the World Championships were held in Hawaii. I mean, Australia. We flew back via Hawaii and decided to watch the Ironman. And I remember watching Paul Lindsay Fraser duke it out with Aaron Baker, and it completely changed my perspective on what the race was all about. I just had kind of envisioned that it was this suffer fest of people just, you know, putting up with pain and discomfort and. Um, dragging themselves through it. And when I saw that they were, they were racing, you know, they were running a fast marathon that all of a sudden it was like, wow, this is cool. People can actually race this distance and it's not just a suffer fest. I mean, certainly you suffer, but the idea that it was actually something that you train to go fast on kind of made it more appealing to me for some reason. So at that point, I, I was like, ah, uh, yeah, I get it now. I'm going to have to do this at some point if I'm uh, a serious triathlete. And for sure, I had noticed that, you know, Paul Newby Fraser, who was winning at that time, um, you know, I would win the world championships and it would get like no attention compared to the people that would win an iron, you know, win Hawaii. So I kind of realized that the media and the attention was skewed a little bit 
towards the um, long distance at that time. Uh, you know, that was before it got into the Olympics, which obviously gave a lot more attention to the short distance. Um, but I kind of missed that niche. <laughs> right. And did you enjoy the the uh, the job that you were working at for those first several years? Um after well, you, you know, or... I did enjoy it, but it was it was a job, you know, whereas mm. doing triathlon was like getting paid to do my hobby. So once I realized I could do that full time and to be honest, the job at the time I was working at a computer consulting company. So I was, you know, using my education, which my mom liked <laughs> and right. dad. Um and I didn't dislike it and it was nice to um you know, have a, a paycheck that I could rely on. Um, but it wasn't a passion by any means, you know? So once I found that I could do what I loved full time, I mean, I, I just loved sports since I was a kid. I remember at one point standing in my driveway, you know, you have pictures of something of, from your past. I just remember this moment standing in my driveway when I was a kid, probably like 12 and I had my bike and a tennis racket and my baseball glove. And I remember thinking, this is all I need to be happy in life is like, I just have to have my sports equipment and I could live forever like this. <laughs> and it's funny that it was, you know, at least two of the sports were ones that I didn't continue with, but, um, but it was three sports I remember. So, um, I've just always, you know, that's, what's made my, uh, heart happy, you know? Right. So, and I think that's why I just kept going, even, you know, when I was kind of on the downside of my prime, you know, a lot of my peers were like retiring at the top of their game or, you know, if they weren't able to win anymore, they're like, okay, I'm retiring. And I've never announced a retirement because I've just never felt ready to say I'm done with it, you know? And, uh, so I'm just sort of, um, fading away gracefully, hopefully. <laughs> right. Um, and when you were growing up, was it like, did you dream about being a pro athlete? I definitely dreamed about the Olympics. Yeah. I mean, I was a gymnast, so I remember watching, you know, Olga Corbett or, um, yeah, she was kind of the, I think person at the time or even Kathy Rigby, um, just thinking that they were amazing and wouldn't it be cool to be, um, an Olympian. I don't think I ever had really the delusions that I could do it in gymnastics, but for sure I watched the swimming and used to think that. And, um, so yeah, for sure. I, I definitely dreamed of that. I'd never seen triathlon until, um, I think it was my senior year in college. There was a guy that was living in the same dorm as me. And I remember one morning seeing him go out on his bike and then like three or something in the afternoon, he came back in looking, you know, kind of bedraggled. And I was like, did he just bike all day? And someone's like, yeah, he's training for this event in Hawaii. And um, it's like an Ironman. And I was like, what is that? So I remember that being my first time I'd ever even heard of it. Um, and that would have been in like 1983, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And what what was the first triathlon experience like for you? So my first triathlon was um, the Harvard women's swim team put on a little sprint triathlon to help them raise money for their team and uh, that you swam in the Blodgett pool, 50 meter pool, and then kind of ran out the back door, did a bike up and down. There's a little um, route around the Charles River that was 
pretty short, maybe a four mile loop that you did a couple times and then did another little loop running along the Charles River. It was maybe a three or four mile run. And um, I ended up winning. It was an all women's race. So, um, but I remember on the bike, somebody had given me, oh, well, the night before my bicycle got stolen, we had gone to the pre-race meeting and then stopped in Harvard Square to grab a bite to eat. And I left my bike leaning against the window and I thought I was watching it while we were eating, but apparently I didn't watch it well enough and it escaped. <laughs> so all of a sudden I had no bike and luckily my, uh, my roommate wasn't doing the race and she let me borrow hers. Um, but, uh. Um, luckily I think in two races later, I actually won a nice Bianchi bike as part of the, uh, prize. And so that would became my racing bike after that. Um, so yeah, a lot of just kind of fortuitous things, <laughs> but I remember on the bike, the only advice I'd gotten was be careful that you don't push a really big gear or your legs are going to be so tired starting the run that you won't be able to run. And so, um, one of the other people doing the race was another one of my roommates who was a swimmer and I'd beaten her out of the water and started the bike and I was in this really easy gear like spinning along I had no idea what I was doing on the bike and I remember she came by me just pushing this monster gear and went flying by me and I'm like okay forget this idea and I went up to a bigger <laughs> gear to try and keep up to her and uh, so just learning as I was going for sure and then I was able to um, outrun her luckily but um, it was, yeah, a big learning curve at the beginning. It's not like we can go on the internet and, um, you know, search how to train for a, the bike ride, you know, right. um, that we were all learning the hard way pretty much. Right. Um, out of the three sports in triathlon, which one would you say comes most naturally to you? Would you say swimming since that's the one you've done the longest? You know, I sometimes wonder if I had um, started as a runner, I think I maybe would have gone further in running than I did in swimming. But I think for my triathlon career, it was much better that I did it in the way that I did because that swimming background is so hard to acquire when you get older. Whereas, you know, doing it as a kid, um, it really helped me for my, um, to have the swim, one of my strengths when it came to triathlon. Whereas running, I didn't really pick up, you know, till I was in my early twenties. Um, and I continued to get better at it all the way till late thirties, really. Um, so running is that one of those sports you can pick up later. You know, I never completely devoted myself to it because I was pretty much early on doing it as part of triathlon training. But, you know, the fact that I like qualified for an Olympic trials, you know, really within the first few years of my running and I never qualified for an Olympic trials in swimming. As a matter of fact, I never even quite made it to NC2A um, Division One Nationals. I, uh, I did get to go on a relay and I ended up being all American because I was luckily with three really good other people on my relay, <laughs> but I wasn't good enough to qualify on my own. So I sometimes, yeah, think, geez, what if I had just run? But I don't think I ever would be able to compete with the top runners. You know, my body's just not built that way. So yeah. I think in the, you know, looking back, it all worked out perfectly. So I think I, 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 I love running and it's the one that I miss the most if I can't do it. And that's mm -hmm. probably because I'm a little burnt out on the swimming, um, just from having done it for so many years. Um, biking was definitely the thing that was hardest for me to pick up, I'd say. 
Um, but at one point, I would say the biking became my strength compared to the other three. So it's interesting that over the course of my career, at different times, different each of the different sports has been my forte. And it's just kind of depended on my current training regimen, I think. Right. And why was cycling um, hard for you to pick up at first? I think it's because I never had any coaching. I was picking it up all on my own. Um, and there's more to it than you realize. You know, you think, you know, oh, just push down on the pedals. But I didn't really have a concept of how I should train. I didn't really have a concept of how to learn, you know, my ideal gearing, how to build strength in my legs. Um, it was... Yeah, a lot of just um, trying to figure it out on my own, and it was just slow going. I wasn't an intuitive cyclist, <laughs> I guess. Right. Um, so I would say, yeah, the first five years that I did the sport, it was also partly that it took it sh- should have been taking up the most time, and I didn't have the time the first five years because I was working full time. So I had you know an hour block before work. I had an hour I could sometimes use at lunch hour. And then I had after work, but after work, there was traffic, there's, you know, daylight limitations. Um, so there wasn't really a good time to get in a longer bike ride. So I would save that for the weekends. Um, but that just, you know, what I really needed was when my company went on halftime, I just started going out for two hour bike rides in the morning and um, making that the first workout of my day and just building up a base. And that's what I ultimately needed. Um, And also I started including a couple of real intense workouts that I could track, even though we didn't have, you know, Garmin's and um, power meters and that kind of thing. I started doing a 10 mile time trial that was just a course near my house. And I'd make my husband come with me and race me. (laughs) And we would go 30 seconds apart, depending on uh, who had won the last time. Um, They got to go second so they could chase down the other person and um, just go learning by doing, you know, just going out and hammering 10 miles. I started figuring out what gears to use, how to put up with the discomfort. um, And I would watch myself getting faster. And that gave me confidence. Yeah. And it sounds like, um, and even for me, even being in the early stages of preparing for my first Ironman, there's a, a lot more to each of the three, um, triathlon sports that meets, then meets the eye, um, yeah. in terms of like preparing, like right. even for cycling, what you were saying with like dealing with all the gears, like, um, uh, just something I really haven't even thought of yet, but I'm sure is really important. Yeah. Um, well, you just sort of, you know, it's like I said in the beginning, you know, that first day where I was, you know, spinning in an easy gear, but I was going nowhere, you know, and then my friend came by just hammering this big gear, which would have killed her if she tried to do that in an Ironman, but it worked out for eight miles, you know, and sure, our legs were a little bit toasted when we started to run, but you train to, you know, overcome that. Um, but yeah, just sort of learning the trade-offs between big gears and easier gears and how to find your sweet spot. Um, it just, yeah, it took some practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and now there's just so much more information out there about that kind of thing that we were all just figuring out the hard way. And then the whole positioning thing too. I mean, now lots of people are like, you know, using wind tunnels or even if you have your power metrics to sort of compare when you're in different positions, 
you can start figuring out like, oh yeah, this might be more aerodynamic, but boy, does it hurt my power. Um, you don't need a wind tunnel for that, you know? So you start kind of like figuring out like, okay, maybe this position is not um, sustainable for 112 miles. So <laughs> I've got to raise yeah. my handlebars a tiny bit. And um, so maybe I sacrifice a little bit of the aerodynamics, but if, if I can't stay in that position, I have to sit up and stretch my back all the time. I'm not being aerodynamic anyway, you know? Yeah. Right. I asked this question to uh, Sue Sotir, who, who, you know, yeah. Um, and wanted to ask you as well. Uh, there's a writer by the name of Ryan Holiday who says that for him, swimming is an immersive, transcendent experience, and for him, a form of uh, almost meditation. Would you describe swimming in a similar fashion? Um, I have had swims where I would um, agree with him, <laughs> but I've also had plenty of swims where I'm like, this is torture. <laughs> so um, I feel that way about body surfing and playing in the ocean when I'm not actually doing a workout. So I probably have too much carryover from the days when I was a competitive swimmer right. where, you know, just time in the pool was there to a means to an end of getting yourself fitter. So I didn't pick up swimming, you know, as just a form of exercise to, you know, enjoy See, feeling my body move I can see how other people might feel that way um and like I said the the feeling of being in the water and playing in the ocean I that's when I get that feeling um so I totally get it but um I think maybe that ship sailed for me when I <laughs> was in the pool all those times yeah right no, that makes sense um, I feel that way a little bit running you know if I go out for a run in the trails um sometimes taking my dog and, you know, just my dog. It's like he has died and gone to heaven. If I am, it's actually she, if I'm taking her for a run, um, she's just so, so happy. And, um, I let that sometimes, um, be a lesson to me. Like this is a privilege, like just to be out mm -hmm. to go out and run in the trails and be free and see your body move because I do a little more running for just kind of getting out the door and getting exercise instead of um, training for a purpose. And so um, that's why I said I do miss the running the most if I can't do it. And there are days where I just want to pinch myself and think this is pretty special being out here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure swimming uh, is probably not very meditative, uh, when you're actually at an Ironman event, when people are kicking you in the face, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think generally if I'm feeling like, oh, this is transcendent, it's because I'm going way too slow. <laughs> you know, I'm like, <laughs> okay, you got to get your head back in the game and start pushing yourself. So generally, um, yeah, you, I mean, once in a while you get into a groove where it's not pure pain, <laughs> but um, right. yeah, you have to stay focused or else, um, for me, it just means I'm not really getting out as much as I should out of myself. Right. Um, what's your pre-race warm-up routine? Uh, well, it definitely depends on the distance. Um, and you know, for a shorter race, I'll do a longer warm-up because I want to be ready to kind of go hard from the gun. Um, although any of my friends, if they listen to this, they'll start laughing because um, I'm... I'm probably one of the few type 
Z people, non-type A people in the sport. And I've been known to kind of roll into the uh, transition area about 15 minutes before the swim starts. And they're like, where have you been? I'm like, oh, I left a little late. So basically all I had time to do was set my stuff up and jog to the swim start. And that's my warm up. Um, but in an ideal world, I would have time to do a little bit of all three sports before I start. Um, I often use the run to kind of run, check out all the transition flow, um, and find out where the bathroom is. <laughs> and if I have time, when I first get there, I'll, I'll take the bike out for just a little, you know, making sure all the gear, sometimes I actually park in a place where then you bike to the event and that kind of solves both the warm up problem and the having to deal with congestion in the parking lot problem. Um, and just, you know, I like to make sure race morning that, um, everything's shifting, that the brakes aren't rubbing, that, um, you know, your tires are inflated, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and then, you know, ideally I also get down to the swim start in time to just do a, a few hundred yards, get wet, get used to the water temperature, check out the start area, um, all that. But like I said, once in a while, one or all three of those things gets cut short. Right. For a longer race, I tend to not end up with much warm up. Excuse me. Um, I kind of feel like for an Ironman, I need to save most of my energy for the day. You know, I might just kind of stretch it out in the water, do a little bit of stretching on land, um, get the heart rate a little, get the body a little warmed up, but without like actually running anything because 26 miles is usually plenty. Interesting. So you'd, um, and most of the time you can't take your bike out, you know, so I'm not usually organized or anal enough to bring a bike trainer into transition, but you know, for something like the Olympics, um, if I had ever (laughs) been fortunate enough to qualify, I'm sure that's the kind of thing that, you know, before the Olympic triathlon, you would want to get on. Uh, and if you can't take your bike out of transition, you'd be getting on an indoor, uh, a stationary trainer and getting your bike, uh, legs warmed up so that you're ready to just, cause especially in those ITU races, you got to be ready to just go right away. You get out of the water because that first half mile or mile is so important. Right. And what do you mean? Um, when you say have it ready in the, well, I'm saying you want your bike legs ready to go. You don't want to oh, have to legs. like okay. warm up once you get on the bike. You know, for an Ironman, you know, the first five miles, you shouldn't be pushing very hard anyway. You want to let your stomach settle after being horizontal for so long. So it's okay to sort of warm up into the bike ride. Whereas a race like a sprint triathlon or, I see. Um, the, uh, like I said, an old ITU style, um, that first mile or two of the bike is where everybody's forming packs. So you want to get on your bike and just hammer and drop everyone behind you, but reconnect with everybody in front of you. So those, you need to just be so warmed up and ready to go. Gotcha. Okay. And for your training, do you do stretch a lot? Um, and if so, do you stretch before or after? So, you know, the, the, the studies are so all over the map on some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some studies that say, yeah, stretching is absolutely key. And there's other studies that, that are like stretching is actually 
counterproductive, you know? So I kind of just go by what anecdotally seems to make me feel better. And for me, it makes sense to stretch before I get in the pool to stretch out all my shoulder muscles. Um, so as much as I can, I try and, you know, stretch out my triceps and do a little bit of arm swings. I might you know, stretch out my lats by just grabbing onto the starting block and kind of stretching that way. Um, so I definitely believe that that helps my swimming to do a little bit of that. Um, I also will sometimes stretch on the wall after a little warm up to, um, give even a little bit more, um, stretching in before the main set. Um, for biking, I tend to stretch on an as needed basis, which is like if my quads feel kind of tight when I start, or if I know that they're tight from having done something the day before, then I will try and do a little bit of stretching of the quads before I get on the bike. Um, generally, if I feel any knee pain, which happens on and off to me, uh, definitely over as I've gotten older, um, sometimes a little patella tendon um, uh, tendonitis, then the first line of defense is to stretch out my quads and hip flexors. And often that's enough to make the pain go away immediately. So, you know, when people say, oh, stretching is counterproductive, I'm like, well, clearly you're not referring to this because I know this works. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, that's the kind of thing. Like, I don't care what the studies say. I know it helps me. Um, running, I generally... Yeah, it's kind of off and on, like if I'm doing a track workout, normally we'll warm up very easy for a couple of miles and then we'll do a little bit of stretching, you know, so having the body kind of already warm, I think is a better way to, to stretch um, and then going into the workout. Um, but I wouldn't say that I have a stretching routine by any means. Um and unless I have an injury, say a plantar fasciitis, which I've dealt with over the years on and off. And so for that, I know I've got to keep my calves uber stretched. So if I'm flirting with a little pain in, in my heel, then I will absolutely do a lot on my calf rolling and stretching and even self-massage before I would do any kind of um, running just to keep that as loose as possible. So I definitely am, I'm, I'm more into kind of targeted work. Um, although lately I've kind of gotten a little more into yoga. So it's kind of nice to do that once or sometimes twice a week, just kind of hits the whole body, keeps it more supple. Got it. So it's, it, you approach stretching on a kind of as needed basis rather yeah, than kind of having yeah, a yeah, yeah. regimented right. routine. Um, exactly. Do you, do you use a foam roller? To roll I do muscle. have one and I do use it. Um, I use it a lot just sort of for kind of cracking my back <laughs> and for my posture. <laughs> just, you know, after being hunched over a computer or hunched over the bike, I just kind of like to, um, you know, put an arch back in my uh, thoracic region or, you know, kind of. So I often just roll out my back, get lots of cracks, which feels great. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I don't use it quite as much for like rolling out quads and and calves, I find it's, it's so much work <laughs> having to support my body. <laughs> so yeah. I'm more apt to, I have a little stick, you know, rolling stick that I'll use for quads and calves. And, um, I often, I'm a big believer in just self massage. If uh, in the old days I was, um, when I was, uh, a professional and I could justify the expense, um, I would get, uh, massage every week and I just loved it and that's another thing that you know you read 
Uh, I'm reading the book Good to Go about recovery methods. And I think the studies kind of say, yeah, you might think it it feels better, but the studies show it's not really helping you recover. Um, But for me, it was so worth it because it was just, it was a reward to me for working hard, you know, and um, I really felt like it helped me. Uh, So another one of those things that I would just go by anecdotal evidence. (laughs) Yeah, so, so just kind of so now that I can't afford to kind of or I can't afford the time too. It's just a lot of time to drive there, spend an hour, hour and a half on the table, and drive home. I'm just a little more time crunch these days. So um, if I have you know sore calves, I just at night just have a little bit of lotion and I kind of work on it myself, and I know exactly where to go and how to do what my massage therapist used to do. It's not as relaxing, but <laughs> I find that does a little better job than the foam roller because I can really get in on the muscles and feel what I'm doing. Yeah, so kind of, um, I guess, approaching it as the same way as stretching, kind of just what feels, yeah, right a little you, bit. What feels yep. good for you. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Have you experienced the consequences of overtraining, whether it be physically or mentally, at any point, at any point throughout your career? Yes, definitely. Um, mostly physical. And um, it happened um, a lot when I had first turned professional in terms of like letting uh, not having a full time job anymore. And so I think I had in my head that I'm a full time pro now I better train a lot, you know, it's like my job. And I just was doing too much for what I was used to. And not only that, um, I remember one instance in particular, I went out to California to race and I stayed with my brother um, and I had two races in a row. So I, I, the first race I did pretty well. And then I had a week to stay with him before the next race and he went off to work and I know he was going to ask me when he came home, what'd you do all day? And I was like, I better tell him that I went for all these bike rides, you know? So uh, <laughs> he lived in a real hilly part of um, San Francisco area and you know, just to, I couldn't even ride easy to get up the hills. It was so hilly. And, um, so I remember every day feeling like, wow, I'm still quite tired when I would go out for my bike rides. And, um, and I think he joined me for like a hard run workout, which I thought I should do, you know, cause that was part of my weekly routine. But normally between two hard Olympic distance races, it was looking back. I'm like, what was I thinking? I would never normally do a track workout in between those. And, um, but that week I remember, um, just fitting all this in thinking I was doing the right thing as a professional. And the second race came along and I was so slow and tired and flat. And I remember just thinking, you idiot, you were completely overtrained. Like what were you doing? So it was a lesson. I just hate going to races tired. It just seems like such a waste of, um, of an opportunity, you know, because if you, if you do the race really well, it's fantastic training, you know, but if you do the race, not so well, it's not that great training. So, um, I've learned that, you know, to go into a race fresh and really push yourself hard is, uh, it takes the place of a lot of, you know, just day in, day out training. And, um, so I made a pact with myself that I would never try and go into a race tired again. (laughs) (laughs) I've never been like one to love, love, love training. Like some people are addicted to the training as much as they are the racing. I always viewed the training as a means to an end. I love the racing. 
And, um, you know, I also love the taper. <laughs> I love the recovery. So anytime <laughs> I have an excuse to, you know, oh, good, I get a day off because I did such a hard race yesterday, or I get to just do a 60 minute easy recovery ride. Um, I always love that. Whereas I know some of the people I coach, it's, they're just, you have to tie them down because they, they feel like they're losing, you know, their fitness if they don't train every day, two or three hours, you know? So I've never, like, again, that's me being the type Z and not the type A. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and on that, uh, like tapering period, um, Sue wanted me to ask you that, um, about you have an interesting, I think, pre-race beer taper oh my three two one taper yes this is very um this is what my biggest contribution to the sport i think (laughs) so um i wrote an article on tapering once for triathlete magazine and uh um you know it had some practical advice about reducing your volume and keeping up a little bit of intensity to you know bring yourself to a kind of a sharper peak and um and then i also mentioned that um it was very important to do the three two one which is three beers three nights before the race two beers two nights before the race and one beer the (laughs) night before the race and that's a perfect taper and um although you do have to be in pretty good shape to you know um uh, start off with three beers <laughs> for that kind of a taper. Not everyone's in shape for that. Um, but uh, I still have people, I mean, I wrote that article probably 25 years ago and I still have people, I'll see at races and they'll be like, Smyers, three, two, one taper. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so there's definitely, it, it resonated with some people for sure, but I definitely do have a beer the night before my races. Um, even before Ironman races really? sometimes. So um, I just find it helps me sleep. It's, um, you know, for me, having a beer is a little bit like having a glass of water. Like I'm so used to it. Um, <laughs> you know, so if you never drink, I wouldn't, I would not recommend you have okay. a beer the night before your race. <laughs> but if you know that, you know, you can have one, you have no ill effects the next day. And like I said, it does help me just take the edge off the nerve sometimes. And it's also a little bit of a, just, um, a mindset that I'm doing this for fun and that one little, you know, action is not going to make or break my race that, um, you know, I've been going to take it as I, as it comes and just, do my best. And that's all I can ask of myself. So there's people that get wrapped up in, you know, their ideal race scenario. And when one thing goes wrong, it just falls apart like a house of cards, you know? And, um, I've tried to counteract that a little bit by being like, you know, you got to learn to just roll with it, you know, and triathlon, nothing is assured, you know, they could cancel the swim, they could cancel the bike, you could get a flat, um, you could, you know, miss a turn on the bike and you could get punched in the swim and pushed underwater and lose your goggles. You know, all these things are what make triathlon kind of exciting and fun. And, um, you've got to learn to just, uh, take things, be resilient and, uh, and get through whatever's in front of you. I bet there aren't many studies uh, about the pre-race beer taper. <laughs> you know, in the book Good to Go, they actually do talk, um, they do some, uh, uh, her first chapters about her doing a little study on whether beer um, it was a good recovery food. <laughs> so I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, there was actually a little uh, 
uh, anecdotal, well, let's see, a, a test of one where Greg Welsh, who was always one of my drinking buddies at races, he was always, um, you know, those Australians will pretty much join you for a um, post-race beer at all times. <laughs> but um, we were known to have a few together. And um, I heard that before one Ironman, he was getting super serious and decided to give up drinking for his training. And I secretly was hoping he didn't have a good race because I was like, oh, oh no, if he gave up drinking and then has the best race of his career, then it means maybe I have to try that. And um, as I recall, I didn't ever decide that I had to give up drinking. So I think that means he didn't have the best race of his career. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, but I do believe it's all, it's so individual. So much of this stuff is individual. Um, I don't think there's hard and fast rules for anybody, but I know that some of my clients that have started using a, um, like a whoop, which is a, mm -hmm. a wearable that tells you like how well you slept the night before and what your resting heart rate is and all that kind of thing. And I know that they've discovered that if they drink, um, you know, even if it's just a glass of wine, that they don't sleep as well. And so it's been you know, a good kind of incentive for them to decide, you know, when and where they actually want to have that glass of wine or that beer. Whereas I would bet I haven't ever worn a whoop to, to figure out that kind of thing. But um, I think by now I would know if it was really that bad for me. So I think I'm just one of those people that can, um, it doesn't affect that much. Right. Or maybe I don't want to know. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you... Um, do you wear or have you ever worn like a Fitbit or Garmin or Whoop? Um, a good friend of mine started a company called Restwise. Um, and we did a little bit of, um, uh, when he had a prototype out, did a little bit of experimenting with that. Um, the Whoop people actually had prototypes that they asked Team Psycho, that's my triathlon club, to um, uh, test out. And so some of us wore that for a while. Um, I have never kind of when all that stuff came into vogue, I was kind of not racing as seriously. Um, and just having grown up not using a lot of the data, um, I've never felt like it was all that necessary for me because I do so much by my intuition. Um, but it's been pretty valuable for some of my the people that I coach, I would say. Um, and there are, you know, there are like the heart rate variability stuff that is not necessarily something you'd be able to tell by intuition. Um, although I kind of wonder whether, you know, when I decide to take a day off, if it's because I do sense that my heart rate variability is down or something. And I'm like, yeah, my body's feeling a little bit like it needs a break. So I'm definitely, and the one thing that I have a, not a pet peeve, but the people that grew up just using data for everything I find that sometimes they have shut off their intuition um, about their body or just never learned how to use it. And they're way too reliant on the data and they're missing some valuable things that their body is telling them. And, you know, the data has limitations, you know, your heart rate, there's a lag before it's going to tell you how hard you're going. Um, and if in that minute or two, you blow it by, you know, going up a hill at, 150% of your FTP, then it's too late by the time your heart rate tells you you've done it. Um, so you have to be able to tell from, you know, the tension in your legs and the effort level that you're putting out. Um, 
and any feeling of lactic acid accumulating, you know, what's going on. So that's one of the things that I try and um, impress upon with people that I coach is that, you know, the data is there to help you learn about your body. It's not there to take the place of your body telling you things, you know? Right. Yeah. So it's really important to be self-aware and and in tune with how your body is feeling. And and using everything as uh, to learn more about what works for you and doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Also a good. And you know, you hate to be like, I have had people like, you know, their whole excuse for not doing well in a race is that their um, Garmin shut off and wasn't working. And I'm like, (laughs) what does that have to do with anything? Like, go out and race like you don't need a garmin to race um so that kind of uh would yeah frustrate me a little bit yeah um and also a good way to prevent overtraining too just being self-aware yeah yep did you work with a lot of coaches throughout your um pro racing career you know, there just weren't that many coaches when I was starting out um at least not that I was aware of so when those days that I was working full time, uh, I remember um, just vividly that I would get my information from Triathlete Magazine that came out once a month. And there was this one drugstore that was near where I worked that would carry it, but they'd only get in a few copies. There weren't that many triathletes around that were (laughs) vying for it. Um, But once I knew it was due to come in, I would visit the drugstore every lunch hour and look to see if it had come in yet because I wanted to make sure I got a copy. And that was my only information about the sport. And um, so it was kind of uh, very different from today um but um now i forgot what your original question was what was your original question just then <laughs> Sorry. oh i was just uh if you worked with a lot of coaches when you were oh racing. so yeah coaching wise you know i did i wasn't even aware of any coaches but luckily i had you know grown up with a lot of swim coaching so i kind of um all it was was sort of learning about the open water swim which wasn't that difficult um the running I had joined a running club so I had some good access to run coaches um and um and other people that had been running for years so I learned a lot from them as well um and then biking was the one that like I said I was self-coached and it just took me forever I remember going for one um personal training session with a guy that worked in Boston at um a bike shop. His name is John Alice. And he's, uh, he's actually a former Olympian track cyclist. And, um, he took me out for a ride and I learned more in that two hours than I probably had in the previous few years, you know? So I kind of wish I had done some of that, um, more, but I just didn't even, you know, someone had told me about him. I wouldn't even have known I could do something like that. Um, and then I did work with Michael McCormick for a little bit. He was, uh, he trained with me here in Boston, um, and then he moved out to San Francisco, but he started coaching some, uh, a friend of mine and my friend convinced me that I ought to, um, that he, he was good biker and did a lot with CompuTrainer. And so I worked with Mike just for one year and it was right before all my accidents. So I kind of, um, didn't end up getting to really, uh, you know, take advantage of all that he had, um, all the training I did with him that one year, I just never got a chance to really race. Um, but he taught me a lot about using the CompuTrainer and how 
Uh, now I coach indoor CompuTrainer workouts myself. I have uh, I work at a studio um, at a company called Fast Blitz, and they have 24 CompuTrainers. And all winter long, I'm just getting tons and tons of people coming through the studio and teach them all the things I wish people had taught me. <laughs> So, but yeah, as far as a triathlon coach, I never had anyone that really, you know, coached me, um, for all three sports. Got it. I'll have to, um, I'll have to check out fast splits one of these days. Um, yeah, yeah. You can do drop in <laughs> classes and, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really great over the winter and it's plus it's, yeah, a lot of people these days they're training in their basement using Zwift and stuff, but it's all virtual. Whereas this is, you've got other people you can hear them breathing and sweating next to you and it definitely you know i'm wandering around sometimes i ride with the group but other times i'm just wandering around watching people's body language you know giving advice on on gearing and um checking heart rates and teaching them what their heart rate zones mean and their wattage and so people really pick up a lot of things that they just never even knew were there to be picked up <laughs> right and, and it's uh, just, it's really fun being in a group. Yeah. And are there like, or I would guess there are like different types of classes too. Like are there, are there ones that are like shorter and geared tour? So mostly during the week I do a 60 minute class and we do the same workout all week long. And most people come once a week, um, but they might come a second time or sometimes a third time um, where there's a 90 minute endurance workout on Tuesday nights and Sunday mornings. So that's more of a kind of, um, you know, straight through. I mean, we, we, I rate workouts so that it becomes a little more, um, entertaining and, you know, you're changing gears and, um, change, you know, going through different wattages where you might do some little tempo uphills, that kind of thing. So every workout's a little bit different and we play videos, sometimes watch old Ironmans or super league triathlons and stuff like that, or bike racing. Um, and actually my, uh, I have a, a friend who, um, Becky page who coaches the Sunday workouts most of the time. And, uh, she's currently racing really well right now. So she's more in the thick of things. <laughs> Whereas I'm, I, I'm an old husband, <laughs> but I coach the uh, workouts during the week most of the time. So anyway, but it's a good, uh, yeah, we've got a good group, a lot of regulars, but then we also sometimes rope in some new people and, um, yeah, it's, it's fun. Yeah. That sounds great. Um, do you follow a strict diet? Um, Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've never, I've always been a, a believer in kind of moderation. And um, I think it's partly just part of my personality. Um, thank God I don't have any, you know, um, allergies to things. or um, So I'm fine with dairy, wheat, uh, beer, as I've mentioned. Um, and, you know, I really appreciate being able to have a dessert at night after I've had a hard day of workout. So, um, I don't rule anything out, but I just, you know, try to make sure that 80 to 90% of my diet is from healthy sources. And I've, I'm not perfect by any means. I could always improve. Um, I could always add more vegetables and I get a lot of fruit, but not as many vegetables. Uh, and I've you know been trying to cut out some of the processed foods, but it's hard. I mean, I'm, um, uh, you know, uh, 
convenience food is, uh, that's the problem. It's like when you come home and you want something quickly and there's crackers and cheese, it's a lot easier than making a salad for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so most of my clients are better about that kind of thing than I am. So I know what to tell them they should be doing. And I tell them not to watch what I'm doing. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things that sometimes, I feel like triathletes are already so regimented in order to, especially if you're an amateur that's working full time and you have a family, you're already so regimented in terms of like using every available hour that you have in your day to fit in a, a workout or fit in some foam rolling or, you know, get extra sleep or that on top of that saying you have to eat exactly like this. I just think it makes your life so, um, unpleasant. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I definitely am a big believer in keeping a little bit of element of fun. You know, even when I was doing it as a professional, I wanted it to be long-term sustainable. So I knew I couldn't make sacrifices that were going to make me resent the sport. And if I change my diet to be perfect and like say, oh, I'm in Ironman training, so I can't drink and I can't have dessert and, you know, I have to eliminate all chips and guacamole or something, that I would start to hate it. And so I, you know, would try and be better about things when – you know, the, um, big races were coming up, but you know, as long as I got my weight down to where I felt was healthy, um, I think that's what kept me doing it for 25 years as a pro was that, um, it was sustainable lifestyle for me. I never felt like, oh, I'm working so hard and not getting anything back. I, I always was like, oh my God, isn't this awesome? I get to do this for a living. (laughs) So, um, yeah, anyway, I know that, there's bigger stakes these days, especially like with the Olympic team and people have kind of a shorter window that they can be on top of the sport because there's just more people that are better doing it. So it's harder to make a living. Um, so maybe they do have to be a little bit more concentrated on getting every little inch out of your body that they can in a eight to 10 year period. Um, but I still feel like it's an endurance sport that you get better at if you just stick with it. And so there's something to be said for keeping it a long-term sustainable um, lifestyle. Um, Because there's tons of people that, you know, they quit, they retire before I feel like they ever came near their potential. Um, You know, some of the people that are chasing the ITU, for example, and it's partly that they're having trouble making ends meet. Um, but partly that it's just a lifestyle that you're sacrificing everything because you're always on the road and traveling and, you know, trying to be so careful about everything you put in your body and, um, you know, recording your whereabouts for drug testing. And it's, it's a hard, it's not an easy lifestyle. I'm kind of fortunate that most of the years that I was doing it, it wasn't quite as, um, regimented, I guess. Didn't require, you know, the travel that we did. To, to do the world championships, for example, we didn't have to, we had one qualifier race, um, generally, sometimes two. Um, whereas these years, both for Ironman and for, well, the Ironman, they just changed, but the whole ranking thing just meant that you had to race a lot. And so it meant you're on the road more, which is a harder lifestyle to maintain. It's more expensive. Um, so it's kind of, it was a little bit harder to qualify for the big races. So, so that's sound- my two cents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
um, it sounds like just kind of as like diet is concerned for you, just kind of everything in, in moderation. It was kind of just, yeah, I mean, you... like I think there's some principles, which is, you know, you almost can never have enough fruit and vegetables, you know, especially fresh vegetables. Uh, some people are up and down with the fruit in terms of like the, the sugar and the, you know, I've never really been a person that has big blood sugar swings. I'm lucky that way. Um, I have to say in my later years, since I've turned 50, I have a little more trouble with keeping the roll off my midsection. And I think that's a little, you know, kind of menopause and, um, uh, changing hormones and that kind of thing. So I'm still kind of trying to figure that out. I mean, I think if I were still training for an Ironman, I think all of that would come off pretty quickly. So I think a little bit of it's just that I'm not training as much as I, um, could be, um, to keep that off. And <laughs> I've learned a long time ago that my appetite doesn't adjust downwards. <laughs> it adjusts up when I'm training more, but it doesn't adjust down when I'm training less. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's, that's a problem. It means that I pretty much have to do some long training every year or I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, you know, the, the principles are that you get as many foods from sort of a natural source as you can, you know, eat grilled chicken that you're grilling yourself rather than buying, you know, chicken nuggets or, um, you know, a processed um, uh, something from KFC or something, um, you know, to have a baked potato rather than a, you know, seasoned French fry that you bought that's frozen. Um, and, you know, if there's a whole bunch of ingredients that you can't pronounce, then, you know, chances are it's got a lot of stuff that's not all that great for you. Um, and which makes me a little bit, it's funny because some people are super careful about, you know, um, not eating a lot of processed food, but except when it comes to their race nutrition, they're eating, you know, protein powders and they're eating these, you know, energy bars that are basically like candy bars, some of them, um, gels that are like just this sugar that they're having, you know, 10 per bike ride. So it's kind of funny that, um, I definitely don't especially since I'm not doing a lot of Ironman training right now, I don't need a lot of that process stuff. I don't really need any supplements all that much because I'm not putting my body through too much anymore. Um, but when I was, I would have, there was one recovery drink that I would do that I felt like when I was having a hard time kind of keeping the calories up to keep my body feeling like it was recovering and strong, I would drink a protein drink when I came in from a long workout. Um, but I much prefer having a meal to having, you know, these pre-packaged nutrition supplements. Um, so yeah, I'd much rather make my own smoothie from some yogurt and fresh fruit uh, than I would just having some protein powder that I stir up in a um, uh, with some water or something. So um, anyway, that's my my little thoughts on the subject. So yeah, if you, you know, make your base thing, natural foods close to the source, and then, you know, have some 10 to 15% of your diet is kind of foods that you just crave, even though they're not great for you, like ice cream, for example, which, you know, sure it's got sugar, but it's sure is good. <laughs> <laughs> right. And how about, um, pre-race nutrition and, I'm, I'm talking about like night before and morning of like, I'm guessing you're probably not having like a burger like the night before. Right. 
um, there must be some sort of. Yeah, I mean, it. Um, it's so personal that, you know, you can ask people what they do, but if, you know, if there's nobody that should do something because that's what someone else does. Like, you are um, an experiment of one, and um, no matter what people say you should have, you've got to make sure it works for you. So I tended to have pasta the night before because it was almost always accessible, it was, I knew it was a simple carb that I would digest quickly and then I wouldn't feel it the next morning. It would come out as soon as I drank some coffee, I'd be able to clear my system. Um, if I was a long race, I would have some protein with it, whether it's grilled chicken, but there were occasions where I might have a meat sauce like that was, you know, ground beef or something in the sauce mm -hmm. if I didn't have access to the grilled chicken. Um but I know other people that swear by having pizza the night before. There's other people that like to have sushi the night before, which is definitely not what I would ever have. But, you know, it's got, um, it's, it's yeah, it's fairly digestible. It's got, you know, white rice that is very good carbohydrate that'll digest quickly. So, you know, it really is what is it that's going to be palatable to you and that you're not going to feel the next morning like um the after effects of you know you don't want a steak because that's definitely going to be probably still in your stomach because it takes longer to digest mm -hmm. um but i have to say when i was a kid we used to eat steak the morning of a swim meet <laughs> and uh, it never really seemed to hurt us all that much um that was what we used to think was the good thing to have before a swim meet was uh, my mom would cook cube steak um but of course, then we also had sugar cubes that we were eating on the deck. So that probably counteracted the uh, the pure <laughs> protein that we shouldn't have been having for breakfast. <laughs> so it's changed a lot. But it's yeah. uh, your body's pretty good about um, uh, unless you do something crazy. It's pretty good about uh, extracting the right nutrition. Right. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think the main thing is, you know. It, you're just kind of being stupid if you pick something that you like for the night before that's impossible to get. <laughs> you know, that's a, it's like some people, you know, if they, they have something that they like to have, but then the, you know, the restaurant doesn't have it and then they feel like their race is ruined, you know, and they, they didn't bring it with them, you know? So, um, you know, if you, for your breakfast food, if you don't think you can access it where you're going, you better be able to bring it with you. Um, so, you know, be practical when you're <laughs> trying to um, find what works for you. Right. And moving to, um, I guess, racing now, do you do you get nervous at the start of every race or triathlon? Um, yeah, most often I do still. And I always take that as a sign if I'm not nervous that um, – it's not a great sign. It's that I'm, you know, not that excited about racing or that I don't, I'm a little bit apathetic about the race and that's never a good way to go into a race for me. You know, I want it to feel like, oh my God, this really matters. And that's what makes you nervous. Uh, and that you're worried about, you know, being able to put up with the discomfort of how hard you want to push. Like if I'm going in, I'm not nervous. That often means that I'm not planning on pushing myself that hard. Um, and I, I do sometimes enter races these days with the idea that I know I can't go hard for various reasons. And so those races, I'm like, okay, you're doing this for fun. And, you know, I'm purposely not getting myself excited because I'm trying to tamp down 
on my competitive spirit because I know I'm not supposed to be pushing myself. Um, but in general, if it's a race where I want to do well, then I should be nervous going in because that's a sign that it matters and I'm excited about right. going hard. So I take the nerves as, yeah, it's definitely a way for the body and mind to prepare itself for an epic um effort you know and so i tell people not to um you know not to dislike the nerves you know they are hard to handle especially going before an iron man where it's just sort of this pit in your stomach <laughs> and it's partly worry and anxiety but you know try to turn the anxiety into just um more excitement nerves uh you know if if you are feeling a dread um or a real anxiety where you just can't deal with it, it's exhausting you, then it's good to kind of go through what is it that's making you so anxious? Like, what are you worried about? And I've had to do that many times um, when I felt like the pressure of a race was kind of getting to me negatively. Um, and for me, I would finally just would boil it down. You know, a lot of times if I would go through the race itself, you know, was I worried about not finishing the Ironman swim? No, but I might have been worried about the start, about getting like hit or knocked, you know, um, out of the race from being elbowed in the eye or something. And, you know, so then you just acknowledge like, okay, yep, that's a risk that you have in the open water swim. And you're going to just try and pick a starting position that's going to minimize it. And you're going to be self-aware as to, you know, where the big clumps of people are and figure out how to get around them. And if you have to, you're going to stop and just, you know, roll over a few people and get to an outside so that you have clean water. And, you know, you just address each anxiety and try and figure out how am I going to handle this? And, and do I have the tools to do so? And, you know, most of the times you've done your training, your homework, then you have the tools at hand to handle these things. Uh, some of the people that I coach that, you know, are very anxious about the open water swim, I tell them like, all right, these are the things that you have at your disposal. You can go hang onto a kayak anytime you want. And you're just going to hang onto that kayak till you get your breathing back together. And then you're going to start swimming again. So you don't have to worry about not stopping, uh, not finishing because you can stop whenever you want to. Um, you can float on your back. You can do breaststroke. Um, you can, you know, raise your hand and someone comes over to you with a surfboard. Um, you know, there's so many options that people have to get through that swim. And it's only when they're envisioning like kind of getting um, hyperventilating and panicking and having to keep swimming and not being able to catch their breath that they, you know, kind of get into that like what am I going to do and I say this is what you're going to do you're going to stop and you're going to tread water and you're going to get your breathing back you know so um, I think a lot of times just for me what I used to worry about was just the pressure of like well you know I kind of want to win or I want to be top three and what if I don't like does that mean I'm a terrible person or I suck or you know the media is going to write bad about me or my competitors are going to think I'm um, no good or and so I would kind of one by one go through those things and be like, okay, first of all, my competitors don't care. They just want to do well themselves. Uh, the media, they're just going to cover whoever did well. They're not going to like, you know, jump onto someone that did bad and give them a hard time. Um, you know, my husband, he's going to love me no matter how I did. Um, the, you know, the prize money, you know, it's, it's 
a kind of a crapshoot sometimes. Some days you have a great race and you still don't make money. Other days you have a not so good race and you do make money. So uh, you can't, you know, judge your whole life just uh, or your whole career based on whether you made money or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would just kind of go through my anxieties and finally come up with like one thing that I always would hang my hat on is like, what is it like? I'm mostly afraid of disappointing myself. You know, all of us are kind of in this for our, for our own reasons. And I would say like, what will disappoint me? And it would always be not giving my best effort. Like if I know I tried my hardest, then I can't be mad at myself or disappointed, you know, I can, I can decide that, oh, I didn't train hard enough. And, and then that means I have to prepare better next time. But, you know, for the anxiety leading up to the race, the training's done. So um, I would finally just say, look, all you have to focus on is on every single leg, giving it your best effort. And then it doesn't matter what the outcome is, you should be at peace with it. And that would often kind of take a little bit of the edge off the pressure. For a few minutes, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because it's always gonna, always gonna be there. Yeah, it creeps back it. in. You know, it's yeah. like a, it's a constant uh, uh, self-talk, which is what the whole race is too—self-talk. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, out of all the races you've done in your career, which one would you say um, was the most challenging for you? Oh boy, <clears throat> jeez, I you know. It's been a lot. Uh, you know, I would say it probably has to be one of the Ironman races. Um, and I would say probably one of the turning points for me was the Hawaii where I had thought I was going to drop out. It was, I was um, trying to have my second child and I had been trying for a couple of years and wasn't getting pregnant. And so I finally realized like it was better for me to just keep racing <laughs> because if I have a distraction, it's like watching water boil, you know? So I thought, well, no better distraction than entering Hawaii. So I had um, decided to go back to Hawaii that year. And I think this was 2002. And um, the like three weeks before the race, I discovered I was pregnant. And so I'd done most of the training and I was like at first kind of a little, uh, not annoyed, but I'm like, oh great, wouldn't you know I'd done all the training when I finally get pregnant. And so um, I let Ironman know that I wouldn't be racing. My husband was still racing, so I was going to go with him anyway. So we were still planning on going. And the day before we were leaving, I ended up miscarrying. So I had done most of the training. You know, once I found out I was pregnant, I backed off a little, but I'd still, I was almost in taper mode anyway. So I I was still kind of continuing what I would have done anyway. And so I was, you know, it was just such ups and downs, you know, first like letting go of doing Ironman, being happy I was pregnant, which is what I really wanted. Um, And then the miscarriage and all of a sudden it was like, oh, geez, you know, I'm not going to be having a baby and now I don't have Ironman either. And I was like, well, wait, maybe I can still race. So I called Ironman back and said, wait, put me back in. And well, I talked to my doctor first to find out whether it would be okay. And he's like, oh yeah, no reason why not. And so as long as he said, you know, mostly it's emotional, you know, whatever you're up for. And um, I said, I think it would be better for me to, you know, be able to throw myself into the race than to go there and watch and, you know, not have anything to show for my last six months or whatever. So um, I ended up entering the race and, um, during the 
the run portion. I was doing okay when I came off the bike. I think it was still in the top three or five. And um, But on the run, I started to suffer from the heat. And I started having a pain in my lower abdomen that felt like it was sort of in my bladder. But I wasn't sure if it was like more of a uterine pain or something, women's parts. <laughs> and mm. I started to imagine that it was um, uh, that something from the miscarriage that was still like swollen and that I was causing damage and now I'd never be able to get pregnant. And I, I kind of created this big thing in my head that I should drop out because I, this pain was not normal. And so about, I don't know, halfway through the marathon, I finally, um, um, I asked if, if there was a doctor that I could talk to. And so, um, I kind of stopped and just was waiting for medical and I started crying thinking I was dropping out, which I just had never really dropped out of many. I think I, the only time I dropped out of a race was from a, um, collarbone, um, crash when I broke my collarbone. So I'd always like prided myself on getting to the finish and that this was sort of a voluntary dropout was making me really sad. Uh, but at the same time, I thought I was doing the right thing for myself medically. And anyway, a doctor finally, the medical van finally showed up and um, they're like, uh, Karen, no, this, there's no way it has anything to do with your miscarriage. You, you probably have a little bladder chafing from being dehydrated and, you know, there's no risk to continuing. So meanwhile, I'd been stopped on the side of the road for like 45 minutes to an hour. And all of a sudden, I think there was a camera on too from NBC that showed him saying, there's no reason you can't continue. And I was like, oh my gosh, I think I have to continue this race uh, because I don't want to drop out if there's no medical reason. Uh, so I had this kind of come to Jesus moment, like, you know, there's no more prize money on the line. There's no real pride um, other than just getting to the finish line. And I remember just sort of envisioning, like, if I dropped out, there were other people. My sister was in the race and my husband. I remember thinking, can I just go stand at the finish line watching other people finish, knowing I'm perfectly healthy and I could do it myself? And I'm like, yeah, I can't. I can't envision doing that. I've got to keep going. And that little change in mind. And at the time, I still had to walk because my bladder hurt so much. But um, I was able to drink enough to finally get my bladder filled up. And then the pain went away and I was able to run again. But I kind of am proud of that race because I had to examine so much of my reasons for being out there and what makes me tick as an athlete. And, um, you know, that it's not just about winning and you know getting the glory it was all about you know what I would be at peace with when I was looking at my results the next day and I knew that I just had to keep going even if it meant coming in with a glow stick <laughs> which I almost got but managed to, to avoid <laughs> but one of the things I did on that run too that made me proud I think that some of the people I think Natasha Badman was winning that day and once I was able to start running again, I actually felt pretty good, but I was, you know, way, way out of the top, um, you know, 30. I think I was back with a lot of the amateurs at that point, but I just felt like um, I want to compare how I'm doing on the run to the top people. And so I knew that they had splits, you know, based on where the mats were. And so I was running as hard as I could um, and coming up with reasons and motivations. I'm like, I'm going to be looking at these splits and see how I would have done if I could have turned it around earlier. And um, and I want to see if I can catch my sister Donna, who I knew had gone by me while I was stopped. And um, so just coming up with motivations to, to keep pushing myself was kind of um, something I was kind of proud of in, in uh, 
retrospect. <laughs> so it's funny that, you know, as much as I'm thrilled with my 95 win, um, and yeah, there were definitely times where I thought it looked pretty, um, I had to dig super, super deep to come up with, with what I did. I also had a great day that day, at least on the run where I felt so good that, you know, when you're having your best races, the suffering is actually a little bit less. And so the feeling of pride when you finish is, is different, you know, but when you've just put up with suffering for no other reason than to just know that you didn't give up, um, it's sort of a different type of pride. Does that make sense? No, it does. That's, um, <laughs> that's a, 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 an unreal, uh, unbelievable story. Um, and I'm sure once you did finish that race, um, that's the only race I ever cried at the finish. When I got to the finish, I burst into tears and, I'm sure it was like all the pent out, uh, pent up emotions of the pregnancy and losing the pregnancy mm -hmm. and the just, you know, I tend to be sort of a laid back person on the out exterior, but I, I, I hold a lot of feelings in. I don't even know I'm doing it, but I'm sure when I got to that finish line, it had nothing to do. Some people thought I was crying because I did poorly. I'm absolutely sure I was crying because of all the emotions I'd held in when I was like, you're doing the race. You're not doing the race. You're pregnant. You're not pregnant, you know? And so just that whole thing just kind of came crashing down and I just let it all out. And, um, um, and I'm happy to say that I did finally, um, a few months later was able to get pregnant and that one stuck and had my son. So it all worked out. <laughs> wow. No, that's, uh, that's great. Um, let's talk about nine, the 1995 Kona, uh, three year you won. Um, was your objective going into that race to win? Well, I absolutely knew I, you know, that that should be my goal. Um, you know, Paula was the favorite, but I had finished second to her. Um, and the year before, and I, I, I'd raced her many times at shorter distance and I felt like I could beat her at the shorter distance. So I, I just kept thinking, well, maybe she's just more experienced at the, you know, it was only my third Ironman coming into that race. So I kind of felt like I'm getting better every year. I should be getting closer to her. And I definitely, the, the first year I'd done it, I was fourth. She was pretty far ahead of me. Uh, but the second year I had definitely, um, you know, she had outbiked me, but I had outrun her. So I had some, you know, uh, at least when you have a comparative advantage in a race, it gives you hope because you always think, well, I, I can catch her on this one discipline. So I felt like I, I had, um, the run leg as, as my ace in the hole. I just didn't know if I could stay close enough on the bike to use it. But that was definitely my objective because she had announced she was retiring. I knew it was my last chance to try and beat her. And I kind of felt like if, you know, if I win in the future, but have never beaten Paula and she's retired, there's always going to be an asterisk, you know, that you were never as good as Paula, you know. So I, I didn't know if I could beat her, but it was definitely um, a big part of my um, thinking going in that that was my objective. And in hindsight, I it was my mistake that I let my race revolve so much around her because, you know, the lesson learned over and over is you focus on what you can control. And I could not control what she was going to do that day. And so when she took off on the bike and I couldn't stay with her, I was so mad at myself that I almost ruined my race by letting myself get into a big funk that after she kept putting more and more time and I kept telling 
yourself. You can't get that far ahead, like, you know, no more than four minutes. And they, that you might be able to catch on the run. And then I'd get a split. She was six minutes ahead. And I'd be like, oh, you stink. You're so, you're horrible. You know, I was just beating <laughs> myself up mentally. And it was not doing myself any, any good. Um, I mean, I was still in second, which is kind of amazing that she put 11 or 12, almost 12 minutes on me on the bike and I was still in second place, but thinking I was doing terrible, you know? Um, whereas meanwhile, she was just having this unbelievable bike ride. Um, but it took, uh, me coming up Kauai high. Um, it was about 60 miles into the bike or 65, something like that. And, uh, I was climbing the hill back up this is before you get on the queen K to head to home. And Dave Scott was there cheering and, um, he gave me a split like eight minutes back or nine minutes back. And I remember standing up on my pedals, going up the hill to kind of show him like, Dave, I'm not taking this line down. I'm so mad. I'm trying really hard to catch her. And, um, he took one look at my body language and he's like, Karen, you got to do your own race. You're doing fine. And luckily I had 40 mile, more miles for that to sink in. And I was like, Oh my <laughs> God, he's right. Like I am like letting my whole race be dictated by what Paul is doing. And it's making me just, you know, waste energy worrying about the fact that I'm so far behind. I've got to pull it together and focus on myself. And so his words really sank in and kind of, I just sort of made this um, pact with myself that I just was going to finish the bike the best of my ability and then have the run of my life because I knew I was in good run shape. And so I did get a split that I was, you know, know, almost 12 minutes back. And I was like, you know what, you outrun her 30 seconds a mile and you'll catch her at 24. <laughs> and so I just kind of put it in my head, like, just start running and see if you can start reeling her in. And I started getting splits that I was doing that the first eight miles, I made up four minutes. And so I was like, there you go, do that in the next eight miles. And uh, she kept um, up the pace a little better on that second eight mile. I think she heard maybe that I was catching up a little and um, but that's also when she started to struggle nutritionally. And so, um, eventually I still thought I was going to come up short all the way till mile and a half from the finish. I was at the top of Polani. It's a long downhill and you come close to the finish line at that part. Like I could hear the finish line. Mm hmm um, but you, you get to, you have to go around it. But I thought when she can hear the finish line, there's no way she's going to let me catch her. Um, uh, but people kept saying, Karen, you're only a minute and a half back. She doesn't look good. You can get her. And I remember thinking, yeah, if I can run a six minute mile, maybe I'll catch her. <laughs> and, um, so I still didn't even think it was possible, but I still was driven by the idea of getting as close as I could because I wanted to make it into an exciting race at the very least. One of the things factoring in was that the NBC hadn't been covering the race as much because they'd already done seven stories on Paula Newby Fraser winning the race. And she'd been winning by a lot. So the women's race wasn't even all that interesting. So part of my thinking going in was just to get the women's race back in the media. I have to make it interesting. So that was another thing that made me so mad when she opened up such a big gap on the bike was that she's going to win by a mile again. What's wrong with me? So the fact that I was getting close had me excited. And so I was just running fast as I could. And at one point, with about a half mile to go, I actually saw her turn the corner to run down Huala Lai. 
And that, that was the first I'd seen her since she biked away from me at mile 25. And I was like, oh my God, this is so freaking exciting. <laughs> and she went out of my sight, but I came around that corner, like looking for her going, where is she? Where is she? Can I catch her? This is so cool. And I pictured us sprinting down a leaky drive together. And, um, but instead she kind of, um, was running down the hill and just, I was closing on her much quicker than I expected because she was having such trouble, but I, I still didn't even know what she was going through. Um, and she stopped right before I got to her and kind of just, um, did a little stumble almost and almost ran into me. And I kind of had to go around her and I pat her on the back and just did a quick look back, but I still couldn't assess what was going on with her. And I didn't have time to spend looking I just had to go so I just sprinted mm-hmm. down the hill got into Lee Drive looked back several times thinking you know maybe she was just cramping and she's going to come back on me don't blow it now and I looked back and there was no sign of her so I had about a quarter mile to realize like I was about to win the Hawaiian Ironman it was pretty darn cool but then as it turns out she after I went by her I think the last little thread that she was holding on by was broken and uh, she walked down to the corner but then sat down and uh sat there for almost 20 minutes and um finally decided to get up and walk to the finish line and she still ended up in fourth place with having a 20 minute break but it was very confusing at the finish line because everyone's like where's paula i'm like "Ah, she was right there i don't know where she is so it was uh kind of a, a crazy finish for sure and she in her um uh, I've got the utmost respect for her one for finishing that day, which I thought without well, that, that I did cry when she came across the line. It was really inspiring and also kind of devastating to see such a, you know, a champion being reduced to, to walking like that when her bare feet across the line. But then she came back the next year instead of retiring and won her eighth race. So she's, wow. um, she cemented her, her queen of Kona for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How how far from the finish line was Paula Newby Fraser when she uh, I guess collapsed? Yeah, she stopped at about a quarter mile to go. Wow. Um, yeah, I passed her with uh, you know she walked another like fifty yards, hundred yards, but after I passed her, which yeah, one of the thing that some people are like, oh, what was it like to pass Paula while she was collapsed? And I'm like hello she didn't collapse till after i passed her i think that was a cause and effect uh i mean i kind of think you know as much as i looked at the tv later and she was hanging on by a absolute thread i really think she would have gotten to that finish line if i hadn't come along whether it was by walking um or whatever and she's i mean for yeah she still had a pretty big gap between um who is behind us um in third and so I think, you know, that once she realized she wasn't winning anymore, she didn't feel like she had to keep going. And, you know, that I think that that was like her last mental um, strength. Um, it was like, okay, I can stop. Thank God my body is failing me. So, yeah, it was all it, her. You know, it's funny. I, I tell the story from my perspective. I've heard her tell it from hers. And she's got a really interesting story, too. You know, what she was going through and her nutritional decisions and, you know, the, the weight of the crown. So, um, it's, it's quite interesting actually. It was it, was it nutritional that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was nutritional. I mean, she had probably pushed the bike super, super hard and maybe, you know, maybe 
it was too hard for the nutrition to go into her system, but she said she was making decisions that were almost, um, uh, designed to kind of sabotage herself. You know, I think there was a little bit of, which I find fascinating, a little bit of, and I, I definitely could see this happening that people just expected her to win. They're like, Oh, Paula, you're going to win again. You know, great job. We'll see you at the finish when you're coming across, you know? And she's like, everyone thinks it's so easy for me. Like they have no idea what I put myself through to get to the position to be able to win this race every year. And I think that it was a little bit like, people taking it for granted that she was, you know, so good and that it was almost like a little bit of a, um, not, not, I don't know she called it self-sabotage, but a little bit like, Oh, if I'm so good, then maybe I don't need to take any of this stuff. We'll see what happens. You know, I don't know. <laughs> she's, she's told some, uh, interesting stories and she had to do, you know, a lot of self-examination afterwards. Um, you know, I think she was, uh, going through her own little ups and downs in her life at that time. And that, um, you know, I was part of the puzzle, but not, not the whole picture for sure. Right. Right. Um, w with all that you've achieved in triathlon, um, you've also had to deal with some pretty, uh, devastating circumstances and events that, um, could well have ended the careers of a lot of other athletes. And they all kind of came in a way of, um, from, I think, um, when I was reading like 97 to 99, um, uh, I guess we can maybe just like go through kind of what, what these were. So what exactly happened with a storm window accident? Yeah. So 1997, I, um, so 95, I had, um, was the year that I won the Ironman and had had a fantastic year and that I'd won the ITU world championships five weeks later. Um, so that was like a, dream year to win both of those races in one year. Um, 96, I, um, went back to Ironman hoping to defend my title. And, um, the only thing I really changed, I, I had better preparation. I was in better shape, but I knew that on the bike, you know, I'd had kind of a, uh, weak spots in the middle of the bike ride where I felt like I was a little bit low in nutrition. So I took in a little bit more calories and it completely um, screwed my stomach up. And 96, I ended up, I came off the bike still in pretty good position. Um, I actually was ahead of Paula that year coming off the bike. And, um, but I started the run and um, my stomach was just so bloated and full. And I ended up throwing up several times the whole first few, for few miles and having wow. to walk a lot. And, um, I was in, I was, I really thought I could break three hours on the run that year. So I was like, so bummed and watching Paula run off and she had this real good duel with Natasha Badman. Um, and, uh, I, I managed to pull it together and that's another race I'm actually quite proud of in that, you know, I'm, I'm mad that I screwed up my nutrition, but I did it with good intentions. You know, I was trying to improve upon my year the year before. Um, but I managed to pull myself back together and still get third, which um, was not easy to do when, you know, you're uh, make such a big nutrition mistake that's, you know, derailing you at the very beginning of the run. Um, but in 97, um, I had hoped to kind of come back and show that 96 was more of a fluke and that I could, I could still win the race again. And, um, I decided to do another Ironman in July to kind of get some more practice with my nutrition. And so I'd done all the training. It was for, uh, Ironman Roth. Um, and 
Uh, I was also good at still doing some Olympic distance. So I was doing a world cup in Monte Carlo and then going to fly to Germany and, um, and do the Ironman two weeks later. And the day before I was supposed to leave, I, for some unknown reason, decided to do a little housework and we still had our storm windows up from the, the winter, even though it was June. And I'm like, I got to take down this storm window so I can open this window up. And, um, it was a homemade storm and I, when I had to lift it out over my head. And as I did, the window must have been cracked or something. So as I was lifting it out, it just shattered and fell all around me. And so this is just sharp glass. And I I kind of blocked my neck and face with my arm. And I got a big cut on the forearm too. So it's a good thing I did that. But wow. one shard just caught me in the back of the leg and um, just cut right through a hamstring. And, you know, I had a couple little other cuts, but I, that one hurt. And I looked down and I saw the inside of my leg and I got woozy and I realized like I might pass out. And, um, so I like quickly hobbled in the house. I was home alone. And so I just grabbed the phone and called 911 cause I was really afraid I might bleed out. And, um, luckily I hadn't cut through an artery. Um, but the ambulance came and took me to the hospital and, um, I, I was hoping I was just going to get stitched up, but they decided to put me under so they could really clean out the glass. And when I woke up, I had a, a cast on my leg from ankle to hip. And I was like, no, and he's like, um, I had to repair something. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm like, no, I, I actually need that muscle repaired. So it's a good thing you did it. So instead of getting on a, on a flight, I had a six month hamstring rehab, um, but in hindsight, it provided a, a little silver lining in that my husband and I had been talking about starting a family and it's super hard to find a time to take a year off when, you know, I was at the top of my game. My sponsorship was all really good. Prize money was all really good doing things like defending Hawaiian Ironman titles. And, um, uh, it was just hard to ever say, yeah, now's a good time to take a year off. So we'd been putting it off and, you know, the Olympics were coming up in 2000, which I knew I wanted to try for. So it wasn't going to get any easier to find a time to take off. So in hindsight, I was like, wow, six month rehab, nine month maternity relieve. Let's get going. <laughs> so we ended up um, using that time wisely. And my daughter was born about nine months later. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I kind of look back on that accident as actually um sort of a fortunate event in some ways because right. I could see of putting off starting a family till you know I was in my 40s and then I'm not sure I would have been able to have two kids at that point um so yeah that was the first of a um series of accidents uh after having my daughter um I in 98 I tried to um make a comeback and she was born in May and I was out training in August. I was going to go back to Hawaii and I was training on the bike near my home with a friend and an 18 wheeler um, tried to pass me on a windy road and a car started coming the other way and he had no choice. Well, yeah, he was made a wrong decision to pass me to begin with, but um, he just kind of knocked me off the road. And uh, so I fell going pretty hard. Um, and broke six ribs, separated shoulder, lung contusion, um, and was out for the rest of that season. Um, 
And that was a scary one, you know, hard to come back from emotionally just because I realized yeah. how close to death I had been. And with a, my daughter was still nursing. And so as a new mom, I had this kind of, you know, incredible guilt hanging over me that I'd almost, you know, taken away her mom. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but, you know, after examining my options, I realized, like, if you want to keep racing, it's something you're going to have to get over and get back out there. And I just decided to minimize the risks as much as I could, but I wasn't going to quit the sport. So I had to get back out. Um, so I managed to get it back out in 99. Um, had a good season, got my ranking back for um, making it to the Olympic trials for the short distance and went back to Ironman in 99. And um, I had a good race and finished second. Uh, my run wasn't quite back to where it had been, but um, Paul, Lori Bowden won that year and she broke the three hours to win the race. And I ran like a 307, which was still good for me. And I was pretty pleased after being out for a couple of years to, to do that well. Um, but right before the race, I had um, gone to the doctor for a little bronchitis and mentioned it that I felt like my front of my throat was kind of big and swollen and he's like well that's your thyroid and it is quite enlarged I want you to get an ultrasound just to make sure it's okay so I'd gotten the ultrasound which had told me that I probably had thyroid cancer so I went into the Ironman that year not knowing but knowing I probably had it um, but they wow. let me put the biopsy off until after the Ironman because I was like, can I just tackle one thing at a time, please? <laughs> and so they let me go into the race without, um, it's a very slow growing cancer. So it wasn't like a big rush. Um, but I finished the race and I remember just sort of thinking all of a sudden like, oh, that's right. Now I have to get a biopsy. I might have cancer. Like, how can that be? I just finished second in the Ironman. Like, there's no way. It must be somebody else's thyroid they're thinking of. <laughs> um, did, you, but, did you think about your like the thyroid, like during the race a lot? Or no, was... I didn't have any symptoms. You know, I was asymptomatic in terms of, um, I didn't have a thyroid disorder, which, um, you know, most people, if they have trouble with their thyroid, they have their hyper or hypo, you know, meaning that their metabolism, uh, if you don't have, you know, the thyroid's very important, but mine was acting normally. It's just that it had started to grow, um, nodules which uh, turned out to be cancerous so mm -hmm. you know i don't know if eventually i would have started having issues but at the time what they recommend is just taking it out so that it doesn't spread it's very it usually stays quite contained um it's not the type of cancer that spreads very easily so if they take out the thyroid and uh, a few of the nodules that were involved generally then they do a mop-up procedure called um this radioactive iodine and uh it's a one-time treatment usually that just um, does a good job of killing all the thyroid cells that are um, that might be still cancerous. So the only thing is, it does is it, it it's a little bit you know I knew that my health would suffer a little bit after having the radiation. I didn't know quite long how long it would take me to recover from that. So they um, well first they um, first I had to have the the biopsy. So after Ironman in 99. I knew I had to do the biopsy, but I asked if I could just do one more little short race to make sure my ranking was solid for getting into the Olympic trials in um, 2000. Uh, so I did one more Olympic distance race and it was in Mexico a few year, uh, weeks after Hawaii. And uh, it was draft legal. 
and a complete fluke accident that as I was climbing um, a hill in a group in the draft legal um, bike pack and the girl in front of me, Lauren Jensen, good friend of mine, actually, she fell just with no warning whatsoever. And three of us went over top of her and I fell and broke my collarbone. And the three of us that all fell, I think there were four of us that fell. One was able to get up and keep going, but the other three of us had to drop out and we're all like, what just happened? And, um, Lauren looks down, her bike pedal is still stuck in her shoe. So her pedal had unthreaded from her crank. So she went to stand and press down and there was nothing there. Her whole pedal came out. So she fell and then with no warning, the rest of us just toppled over and they were all okay. I'm the only one that broke a bone. Uh, So that was like kind of, that was almost worse than everything else because I was like, no way, not another thing on top of everything. And um, after I just finally gotten back into good shape and everything and knowing the Olympic trials were coming up in a few months. And um, so I flew home. I was pretty bummed out at that point. Got the biopsy the next day, which said, yes, indeed, you have cancer. And so I'm like, all right, let's have my thyroid uh, surgery right now while I'm letting my collarbone heal so we can get these things over with. And so I was able to schedule the, um, the surgery, um, in December and the collarbone took six weeks to heal. And unfortunately I had a frozen shoulder cause I was such a good patient at letting the collarbone heal. Um, so then I had a little bit of, um, uh, rehab to do to get the shoulder working again. And, Uh, just a couple months, April was the first Olympic trials and, um, I gave it my best shot, but just my swimming wasn't back to where it needed to be after the separated shoulder and the broken collarbone. And, um, so I didn't quite make the swim pack. I I had good runs, but just was too far out of it at that point to, um, to be a factor in the race, unfortunately. Um, I got to try again. We had a second Olympic trials in June. Um, and again, it still was my swim that just kept me out of it. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I look back on it and as much as I, it would have been so cool to make an Olympic team. Um, I do look back and think that that was the perfect race to have, um, coming up to, just completely motivate me and have me so focused that I didn't have time for any self-pity or, um, you know, it was just like, get going. You'd have no time to think about anything, but get ready and, uh, get swimming, get running, get biking. So, um, it was a great distraction. And in some ways that journey was just what I needed at that time to pull me through what could have been a pretty tough, uh, few months. Yeah, for um And then sure. oh, so then they had let me put off the radiation treatment until after the Olympic trials, knowing that it might kind of um affect my um ability to train and race. So after the trials were over, I went back to um they do a little uptake test to see how much radiation to give you. And I had this huge absorption of the little trial dose, which made them realize that I needed to have another surgery instead of just having radiation. So I had to have a second thyroid surgery to remove um, some big lymph nodes that were affected. And then I had the radiation treatment in September. I still, that was 2000. I still had hopes that I might go to Hawaii that year if I didn't make the Olympic team. 
but um, it became clear to me after the radiation treatment when I was trying to train that I there was no way I was going to be feeling good by October, so I had to kind of shut it down the rest of 2000. Um, and uh, but I I made a comeback in 2001 and won my uh, eighth national championship, so I feel like I uh, I did at least come back. I think I got fifth in Ironman that year wasn't my best race. Um, but I gave it a good go and I was, um, 40 years old at that time. And, uh, I, um, so yeah, finishing fifth in Ironman at age 40 was not bad. Looking back, I'm like, wow, that was pretty good at the time I was disappointed, but, (laughs) um, and at the time I've, uh, it's an odd little thing that I don't know that's ever been really, um, looked at, but, uh, I happen to know that I beat all the 40-year-old men in that um, race and, uh, you know, all the master's men. So I'm wondering that I don't know that ever a female has won the age group, you know, overall um, in Hawaii. I don't, I'm sure it's never been done in the professional ranks and at all the uh, amateur ones that I've ever looked at, it's never been the case. So I kind of take that as a, a kind of a cool little uh, factoid. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's uh, that's amazing. Um, I guess in being such an Uber athlete, how, how were you, how were you able to keep yourself, I guess, sane in those days when you couldn't train the way you wanted to did the, I'm, I'm sure the child had, or having um, your first kid had a, um, played a big part in that. Yeah, it definitely changed your, my perspective in terms of, you know, the importance in the grand scheme of things of, you know, my racing and training. Um, but at the same time, I think just my love of the sport and the privilege of being able to make a living at, at my hobby, you know, it's something that was just a joy for me, um, was enough to make me, you know, fight like hell to hold on to the lifestyle. Um, I knew things were changing a little bit, you know, as a mom, but luckily my husband was, um, super supportive and, and available for helping with the childcare and stuff. So, um, we definitely knew we would, it would be a partnership and trying to make it work going forward. And, um, so, um, you know, kind of as a family, we decided to make it work and, um, you know, that there was never an accident that was so bad that I thought, oh gosh, this means I'll never be able to race again. Um, the closest probably I came was the 18 wheeler, just really being scared about getting back on my bike. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when it came down to the stark reality, like if you don't get back on your bike, you're quitting, you know, and I just couldn't fathom that. So that's what got me over it. Um, you know, the cancer was certainly a huge scare. Um, I did have to make sure, you know, once they take your thyroid out, the protocol is you take a, you have to take a thyroid hormone in order to, um, keep your body (laughs) working, uh, because your thyroid is never not there to produce the hormone anymore. So there's a synthetic one you take instead. And I had to make sure that wasn't on the banned list. It occurred to me, I'm like, Oh God, I hope this isn't banned, you know, but it was, um, it's fine. And, um, I also found a role model right away. Like I just started Googling, like, especially since I was trying to do a quick turnaround, I started Googling athletes with, uh, elite athletes with, um, thyroid cancer. And I found this girl, this rower from Canada named Emma, who, um, had had basically the same cancer and been 
the same surgery and she even had the radiation treatment. And then something like a several months after that, she had um, set a, a world record rowing. And uh, I was like, oh, awesome. That's all I need to know is it can be done, you know, so that there's no reason that this has to um, be an excuse or hold me back. So, you know, once I knew these things were possible, it just kind of was just a question of doing it, you know, and being patient. Um, uh, I think all my years as an athlete kind of taught me um, about the amazing ability of your body to bounce back from things as long as you give it tenderloin care and um, patience and treat it well. Uh, so I knew it was just a question of doing that and um, not getting discouraged at, you know, how far I'd fallen down. And um, so, yeah, it was, uh, and in some ways, yeah, it gives you a new perspective to it. it makes you appreciate uh, being out there that much more. So. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's unbelievable. And especially since you, um, kind of when, when you got back into, into racing, you're, you had success pretty, pretty quickly, which is, um, yeah, I mean, crazy. <laughs> and I could kind of tell by my training, you know, at what stage I was in, you know, I, I, a couple of times I made some false starts that maybe in retrospect, there was, uh, the race, the triathlon got into the Goodwill games and it was in New York city. And, um, this was actually the so it's been the second Goodwill game. So I had gone in 94 when it was in Russia. And that was really a cool event to be a part of, you know, having triathlon as a part of a multi-sport, you know, included with sort of like an Olympic games or like the Pan, Pan, uh, Pan Am games was also a cool event that I did. And, um, actually won the gold medal for that um, in Marta Plata. Um, so I loved being a part of that. It just felt so special, sort of like a mini Olympics. And so when I found out it was, um, in New York city, I thought, Oh, I totally want to be a part of this. And I had to kind of finagle, a um, a special invitation since I had been out racing, uh, racing in 97 for my accident and having the baby. So I think it was in, uh, beginning of the summer of, 98. So my daughter had been born in May. I was still nursing and I thought, yeah, I'm ready to race. You know, it's a, it's a draft legal swim and, uh, I mean a, a draft legal on the bike. So if I can just stay close enough, um, then I, you know, can draft on the bike and my running's doing okay. Um, but I kind of overestimated <laughs> how good my swimming was doing and I got dropped big time on the swim and, um, I came out and it's, it was a small field, only like 20 athletes. So I think there was one girl behind me and everybody was else was up in a pack. And so this girl was not like, she was, I can't remember where she was from, like South America, someplace. She was not like one of the better bikers. So she was just drafting off me and we were like going nowhere, getting further and further behind the main packs. And I was getting frustrated with her about not taking a pull and, uh, but um, I came off the uh, the bike and started running. It was a couple of loops in Central Park. And um, my husband and parents were there. And they were holding Jenna, who was, you know, just a few months old. And um, I had actually nursed her, like, after I warmed up, I went into the car and nursed her quickly. So I knew she would be okay and I would be okay. And um, I remember thinking while I was doing that, like, I don't think any of the other pros are doing this right now. <laughs> but um, anyway, so when I was running, my dad was holding 
Jenna and he holds her up and she's crying and I'm running in like 21st at a 22nd place and um, I see Jenna crying and you know as a new mom you feel this responsibility and my dad's like hurry up your daughter needs you <laughs> and I was like oh my god if there's ever a chance that or a reason that I could use to drop out right now this is it like I'm in last place uh, well it turns out the girl that drafted me the whole way ended up dropping out so I really literally was in last place um not only that but it's two laps in central park so the leaders lapped me right before we came around to the finish and i was like this is just so hard on my dignity right now and you know i could just say oh my daughter was crying i had to drop out you know but i was like if you drop out because of this it is all because of pride and nothing else and i cannot drop out because of pride like it's just I would not let myself because I just felt like it was such a slippery slope that you could always do you, I would just start justifying it left and right mm -hmm. so I'm like you finished this race you wanted to do it you got a special invitation I don't care how you know embarrassed you are right now you keep running so I had to run by my daughter and um, eventually made it to the finish line and she was fine. And <laughs> But that's another one of those races that I'm like, that's what makes you, you know, build your character as to, you know, it's those little things where you didn't give up when everything told you you should that kind of you hang your hat on later when going gets tough that you're like, nope, I, I'm not a person that drops out. Keep it going, you know? Right, yeah. Um, I guess going into like these, f the final questions I have, um, have for you. Uh, the first one is what advice would you say to someone who came up to you and said, I want to make a living being a pro triathlete or endurance athlete? <laughs> I hope you love it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's definitely a lot harder these days to, um, break into making a living at it. Um, certainly helps if you have, a a sugar daddy or a, <laughs> some parents who are supportive <laughs> or something. It's just very hard to get good enough to make prize money um, when you're also working full time, you know? So mm -hmm. it means you have to quit your job and it means, you know, for a couple of years you have to devote yourself to training when you're not making any money. Um, so it's not an easy uh, uh, task these days. Uh, but, you know, generally, you know, I'd say if you love it, then you can make it work. And what you should probably do is have a part-time job that's going to take the financial pressure off you because if you, or if you, you know, have a nest egg or some support system that's going to help you financially, because there's nothing worse than having to race for like your mortgage payment or something or your rent. Um, that added pressure just is, does not do you any favors. It's super hard. Um, so I would say the more you can relieve having your finances be a big part of your worries when you're racing, the better off you'll be. And you're better off, you know, skipping a little training and having a little more financial stability probably. Um, and then it's just a question of being consistent, you know. So I'd say people overtrain these days. I mean, some of the the amateurs that I train train as much as I did when I wasn't even working. Um, so you don't need to train as much as some people think if you train smart. Um, I was always a minimalist trainer and I got super fast with Olympic distance before um, I started loading on the volume. 
And I think that was a, um, a way to not have to do as much volume. Um, and so I do recommend the people that like live in New England in particular, that they kind of do the reverse pyramid and get themselves very, um, sharp and fast over the winter time, and then just layer on the volume in the spring and summer, um, to get prepared for your longer races. And that, I think that even works for some professionals. Um, and it gives you a little bit more of a, a break from the, you know, day in, day out grind of the long stuff. Um, but there's not a lot of people that have the courage to train less. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, they, they, I, I was somewhat fortunate in that I lived in Boston and there weren't that many other professionals in my area. So I wasn't being exposed to what everyone else was doing. And I find out later how much, you know, people were doing 350, 400 miles on the bike while well, I was barely doing 200, but I didn't know that that was bad and it was enough for me, you know? And if I had known what they were doing, I can see me trying, like it would have gotten in my head that, I wasn't training enough, um, but because I didn't know, I didn't suffer from it, you know. Um, in hindsight, could I have maybe done a little bit more? Probably. Um, but again, I think that's what kept me in it for the long term. So I guess be patient, you know, fit the training in that works for your lifestyle. And if you keep being consistent and train smart, you're going to ke- keep getting better year after year. And then maybe you'll get to the point where you realize like, hey, if I go full time, I think I can actually make a living at this now. I've established myself. If I just have a little more time for sleep, recovery, travel for races, I think I can make the leap to being a self-supported athlete. Right. Right. And I would also say, you know, if you're young in your 20s, absolutely try to make it as an ITU athlete before you try and make it as an endurance athlete. Um, Because you can always pick up the long stuff later. But if you don't develop your speed when you're young, you're never going to get to your prime. Um, So you're far better. You know, that's what the track that almost everybody does is they start with the short, fast races and then they become an endurance. And it's what runners do too. They start out on, you know, high school doing cross country, three mile type things, miles on the track. Then they might move up to the 10 K in their twenties. And then they move up to the marathon in their early thirties. And those are often the people winning the marathons. Gotcha. So what does your daily routine look like these days? Um, these days I'm mostly coaching. Um, so, um, I, I train with a lot of my athletes. Um, I, you know, coach these indoor bike classes, um, most days of the week. So I'm, I'm at the bike studio a lot at fast splits and, um, I'll bike with the group, you know, maybe three times a week, but the other days I'm just coaching. Um, and I, I run, I run alone a lot these days because I'm having some cardiovascular, uh, issues that I makes me have to walk a lot on my runs. So it's a little, I'm a little frustrated with that. I'm trying to figure it out. It's been going on since I turned. That's why I gave up my pro license, to be honest, as I, I started to cough up blood in my races. So I know wow. something's not quite right. And it's happened to me a couple times a year. And when I race that, and it always seems to be only when I get to the run portion. So there's definitely something really weird going on. And I've, been to cardiologists, pulmonologists, uh, allergists. I've been to all kinds of people and we can't quite figure out what's going on. But my, um, yeah, my, 
I just am not getting the oxygen I need these days to really feel like I can race. I can train, especially if I do, I'm doing intervals. Um, I think it's because I just go anaerobic and then recover. Um, but doing sustained like tempo or sustained racing is super hard for my body right now. Um, so if I do do races, I often just do kind of fun things where I know um, I'm not really I'm just doing it to com- to complete instead of to compete. Um, but I haven't given up on, on being back out there as a true competitive athlete. So, um, I'm, uh, I'm still trying to find answers and, um, and then I swim at a mat. I've been swimming either with a girl that I coach or I've just recently started swimming with a Wayland masters, um, group. That's kind of fun to swim with the group again. Um, so I do still enjoy the training and, uh, so I try to, I probably am training anywhere from seven to 10 hours a week right now. So it's nothing super crazy, uh, but it's enough to keep me somewhat fit. Right. I do a little bit of different things like yoga, gravel ride here and there, uh, cross country ski, um, some strength training, you know, little bits of everything right now. Sometimes it's more based on what I feel like doing than because I don't really have any race goals right now. Sure. Right. Um, and in the summertime, I coach a, a women's track group um, once a week. And in the fall, I do a women's um, trail running group. Um, and um, I'm putting on a few events. So I, um, I'm putting on a kids try every year that's been going on since my daughter was five. And she's now 21. So it's been 16 years, 17 years. Um, and I'm involved in a race call or a ride called the, um, Beta, uh, VT ride. It's a brewery. Well, it used to be a brewery to brewery ride and, um, we used to be sponsored by Harpoon Brewery, but it, we had to change venues. So now we ride up to Okemo, Vermont and it's a 148 mile bike ride in one day, point to point. And so I'm on the organizing committee of that super fun. Um, I'm also the captain of the Collins cup, which I don't know if you've heard anything about that yet. No. Um, so the Collins cup is, um, a new venture from the, uh, pro triathlete union that has been recently formed and it's their signature event. It's modeled after the Ryder cup from golf, um, where there's, we have three, um, teams from different regions. The U S is its own team. And then there's Europe, which is, you know, Germany and France and all of those countries. And then there's the internationals, which is Canada and Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, Mexico, kind of all the other non-European and non-US countries. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a big team competition at, uh, it's going to be at a race in Slovakia, the Challenge Series finale. Um, and it's at the Half Ironman distance. And it's a matchup race where there's six uh, men and six women from each team that go against each other and you earn points based on whether you get first, second, or third in your matchup. And um, you also get points for beating your competitors by more than a certain amount. So if you, you know, beat them by five minutes, you get a bonus of 30 of um, a bonus point. Um, so it's a really cool concept. All the top triathletes in the long distance world have signed on. Um, it's huge prize money. And there's captains that are just like with the Ryder Cup, kind of um, 
aging legends. <laughs> so for the U.S. team, it was Dave Scott and me for the men's and women's captains. Um, Dave Scott actually has a conflict this year. So and Mark Allen is the men's coach. Um, for the other teams like Chrissy Wellington um, and Norman Statler and Simon Whitfield and uh, Aaron Baker and Lisa Bentley. So there's all these great names from the past that are all captains. And we all help with choosing our team and figuring out the matchups and, and um, helping organize and give our team advice and things like that. So it's super exciting and fun. And it's, uh, I can't wait to go to the race and be a part of it. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds awesome. Um, and it sounds like you're definitely still staying really, really busy these days. Um, yeah, yeah. There's with, it's, us, with this other stuff too. Yeah, that's a jack of all trades. I feel like I'm juggling a million things at times, but it's <laughs> it's fun. It's better than not being busy. Right. No, for sure. Um, so what's kept you driven for so long uh, as an athlete? Is it kind of your love for the triathlon? Um, no. Or, just being ultra competitive in the competition? Uh, is it constantly wanting to improve? Is it a combination of, you know, those three things, something else? Um, I think it's all of those things. You know, I think I've, um, I've just loved identifying as an athlete from a early age, you know, it's just part of my DNA of who I am and what makes me tick and what makes me happy. So, um, I can't imagine a time when I'm not doing some kind of sport and, I really, really, really miss competing right now. So it's part of the reason that I, I still, even though I know that I might end up coughing up blood, that I still enter some races because I can't stand it. Um, I don't like being on the sidelines. And um, I don't really love training just for the sake of training. I mean, I've learned to, to love it, but um, uh, I'm much happier if I'm training with a purpose, um, with a, a goal that excites me. So I really, um, am missing that and hoping to get back to it. Um, and yeah, it's all that it's, I, I love having a goal that, um, that makes me want to work hard for it. And it's, uh, that's the kind of thing that makes me, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're thinking, oh yeah, what's my life all about? And you're like, oh, that's right. I've got this great event that I have to train for. You know, it's, it's just always having something to look forward to, I guess. Um, and I've noticed from the people that I coach that uh, it's a real phenomenon that they might train for a big race like an Ironman. And no matter how they do, whether they have the race of their life or have a disappointing race, there's always a post-race blues that sets in the week after. And it's that all of a sudden not having a big motivating goal in front of you that is depressing. And so I just find that, you know, if you keep setting goals, it just keeps you from getting um, unhappy. It's just a, it's a, a depression lifter, you know, <laughs> not that I struggle from depression or anything, but um, it just does add a little element of excitement to your life to have goals to work towards. Um, and it's, you know, it's as much about the, the journey of trying to attain them as it is about the actual achievement, I think. Um, yeah. so, but I live, I, I'm living a, very vicariously through the people that I coach, you know, I've had some, I've coached some, uh, world champion, you know, amateur triathletes and some national champions and, um, lots of Hawaii qualifiers. And so it's been super fun watching them or even just people, you know, finishing their first, um, uh, first triathlon or first Ironman. So, um, I'm, I've really, um, tried to let their, uh, racing satisfy a little bit of my, uh, need for that kind of thing. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I could definitely also appreciate um, training for a goal and kind of giving your training more of a more of a purpose. I know for me, it just makes it a lot more fun to know you're, um, I guess you're training for something other than for the sake of just kind of staying fit, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's just a different kind of, yeah, uh, feeling or purpose or, yeah, intent. And so, yeah. And I just, I do the, I just like comp- competition, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of, I'm a competitive by nature, you know, from the days when I was trying to do one more chin up than my dad, you know, when I was <laughs> six, <laughs> it's always been a part of me. Yeah. Um, and lastly, what's, if you had to give one piece of advice, um, for anyone listening who are training for their first endurance race, whether it be or even not so much endurance race, like say their first triathlon or their first marathon, first half Iron Man, et cetera. What, what advice would you, would you give them? Oh, geez. Um, Oh, I guess I would just tell them to, you know, maintain perspective a little bit that, you know, hopefully it's the first of many and that ultimately it's a really enjoyable thing to be doing and that, Um, you know, don't put a ton of pressure on yourself to make your first race perfect. Um, just try and do the best you can. And, um, hopefully you're going to love it enough that you're going to have many more tries in the future. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, there's, it's hard to give one piece of advice, but, uh, yeah, just keep it enjoyable because, um, ultimately that's what it's, it's, uh, it's supposed to enhance your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I think that's, um, that's a great piece of advice. Um, I think that's also a good place to end. Um, Karen, thanks again for coming on. This is yeah, great. my pleasure. What's the, uh, the best way for people to contact you? Um, if like about coaching or speaking. Yeah. So I have a, a website, um, uh, Karen Smyers.com and you can contact me through the website. So that's a great way to get in touch. If anyone's interested in yeah bike classes or coaching or learning more about the Collins cup or anything whatsoever. Great. Um, and you guys can also follow me on Instagram at chase Rosa four for updates on new episodes and on my endurance training journey. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.